We're picking back up in our series in the Gospel of John today. You can turn to John chapter 2. You also can find that in your bulletin. So in the passage we're about to read this morning, we're going to find Jesus in the temple. He's going to make a whip, drive people out of the temple, turn over tables, and scatter money everywhere. It's a pretty crazy scene. It, it, it makes me think of a basketball coach coming into a locker room at halftime, uh, throwing chairs and smashing chalkboards. Uh, maybe that's not the best illustration. Jesus is not an out-of-control basketball coach, but the, the scene is a little disconcerting to us, I think, if we're honest about it, because it's not how we tend to think about Jesus. We tend to think about Jesus as much more in line with the title of Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. That's how we think of him. It's a great book. I'd, I'd encourage you to read it, but Jesus doesn't seem very gentle or very lowly in this passage. You know, we, we, I, I think we have this kind of box that we tend to try to put Jesus in, and he just doesn't always fit. Uh, earlier in chapter 2, we, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is at a wedding party and they run out of wine and Jesus doesn't say, you've had enough to drink, no more wine for you. He makes more wine. Today, people, people are at, chur- at church, they're at the temple, they showed up for worship and he's running people off. These are not things we would expect him to do. And it tells me Jesus would be a lot of fun to have on our hospitality team. Uh, but maybe you wouldn't be a great greeter. I I don't know. Um, My point, though, is if you get involved with Jesus, he's going to do some unexpected things. He may bring rich celebrations into your life, but he may also turn over some tables from time to time. So we're going to think about that today. Let me read for us John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. This is God's word. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let me pray for us. Father, you're kind to allow us to be here this morning. You're merciful 
to give us your word in a language that we can read and comprehend. Um, Father, would you help us to pay attention to this word now? Would you work through my words, as feeble as they may be, uh, to show us your goodness and to show us your glory and to draw us to yourself? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, four things in this passage. I want to talk about what Jesus sees, what Jesus does, what Jesus desires, and then how he's going to bring that about, bring those desires about. First of all, what Jesus sees. The text tells us that Passover was at hand so that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. Now, Passover was celebrated annually. It was a great commemoration of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. If you remember the story, the the Lord was going to pass, was was going to to strike down all the firstborn of Egypt, but the way that the Israelites were spared was by killing a lamb and placing the door, uh, the blood on the doorpost and over the doorframe. The result of all this was that Pharaoh did indeed let God's people go, and so they commemorated this um, occurrence each year with the celebration of Passover. And so Jesus has gone up to the celebration, he's gone to the temple, and he sees people at the temple selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and he sees money changers there as well. Now, why were there people selling animals there? Well, when you came to Passover, you had to sacrifice an animal. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus of that era said that at one Passover, over 250,000 animals were sacrificed. That's a lot of animals that need to be sacrificed. And the Jewish people were traveling. Some of them were coming from long distances. They did not have cattle trailers to bring these animals in. And so it was easier for them to just buy the animals that they needed to sacrifice once they got to Jerusalem. So these people selling the animals are, in one sense, helping them out. Well, what about the money changers? Why are they there? In addition to making sacrifices, there was an annual temple tax that had to be paid, and it had to be paid in a certain currency. So the money changers would take your dollar or peso or whatever, and they would convert it into the required currency there so that you could pay the temple tax. And at one time, both of these activities had been taking place on the Mount of Olives, removed from the temple, but gradually they had moved and were taking place in the temple courts themselves, probably in the outer court, which was the court of the Gentiles. And we'll explore this a little more in depth in a minute, but Jesus obviously is not happy about this. He tells them, take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. Now, I'm not sure how long this buying and selling had been going on in the temple courts, but however long it had been going on, nobody seemed to have had a problem with it up to this point. Nobody has raised an objection about it. They don't see the problem with it. It's just kind of part of what we do here. But Jesus sees a problem with it. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Are are there things in our worship? Are there things in our lives that have just kind of been a part of things for so long that we don't really see a problem with them? But Jesus does. Uh, There were a lot of people for a long time who didn't notice a problem, people in the church who didn't have a problem with the African slave trade. It's just kind of part of the way 
life was done. They didn't see a problem with it, but Jesus did. American churches today can sometimes create a toxic brew of religion and politics, and we just mix it all together. And I, I kind of wonder sometimes if Jesus might show up and say, don't make my father's house a house of politics. It's not what it's here for. We might not see it. We might not see it. But Jesus does. Or maybe it's the way that we come to our comfortable places of worship, which we are thankful for. And then we go back home to our comfortable homes and continue to pursue our comfortable lives and ignore the cries of the poor and needy. And somebody else is going to take care of that. I mean, they always have. And we just get so used to the status quo and the way things are that we don't even see it. We don't even see that there might be a problem with that. But Jesus does. There's something else that Jesus sees here as well. He sees what's going on, not just on the outside, sometimes things we're oblivious to. He sees what's going on inside our hearts as well. Look at verse 23 and 24. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Uh, the words here are interesting in Greek because it's, it's almost like John is saying they believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. He saw what was really there. He saw that they were caught up in the religious excitement, that they, but they didn't really know him. There was a very shallow, surfacey level of belief that didn't go all the way down to their hearts. Jesus sees. He sees our singing and our smiles and our worship and our earnestness. He hears us saying all the right things, but he sees what's really going on in our hearts. Uh, I was reading a story in a commentary this week. The author was telling a story of Malcolm Muggeridge and of how his conversion to Christianity was driven in a large part because he got a glimpse of his own heart. And, and, and you've probably heard this story before. <clears throat> Muggeridge was working as a journalist in India. And he, was, he, he went down by the river to take a swim. And when he got there, he noticed a woman bathing. And he decided in that moment, I think I'm going to try to seduce her. And so he starts swimming across the river toward this woman. And in his head, he's thinking, I've made marriage vows. I'm, I'm a married man. But he just swam faster. And he got over there. And as he approached the woman, she turned and she looked at him. And she was a leper. And she had no teeth. And she was hideous. And he said his first thought was, what a lecherous woman. And then he thought, wow, what a lecherous heart do I have. And I started out to tell that story because I'm pretty sure I've told that story before. But then the very next thing in the commentary said this, because the author of the commentary was drawing this story about Malcolm Muggeridge from a book by a man named Robbie Zacharias. And the next line is, Ravi Zacharias comments, when we look into the human heart, we see the lust, the greed, the hate, the pride, the anger, and the jealousies that are so 
destructive. And I'm guessing you know about the awful things that came out about Ravi Zacharias after his death. Um, We didn't see. Nobody saw. But Jesus saw. Jesus saw because Jesus sees. He sees what's going on that we miss that should be obvious. He sees what's going on in our hearts. Well, what does Jesus do? In verses 15 through 17, he makes, whip, makes a whip and he drives out the traders and their animals and he pours out the money and he turns over the tables. It's, just, it's an amazing scene. He, he's angry. I don't know if you ever think about Jesus that way, but he's angry. He's rightfully angry at what is happening in his father's house. And so he turns over the tables. He turns over the tables. That's his prerogative. He has the authority to do that. And y'all, sometimes Jesus comes into our lives and he turns over the tables there as well. That's his prerogative. He has the authority to do that. He brings things into our lives that we hate. He takes things from us that we thought we couldn't live without. Why does he do this? Well, the next point, what does Jesus desire? What does Jesus desire? Jesus, the text tells us, is concerned about what's going on in his father's house because the temple is where you came to meet with God. It's where you came to offer sacrifices. It's where you came to pray. And Jesus wanted people to know his father. He wanted people to have a relationship with his father. And because of who his father was, he wanted people to be able to worship his father. But it's all like cows and slot, slot machines or something. It's, just, it's crazy. It's chaos. And it would have been happening in the outer part of the temple again, which is the court of the Gentiles, which is the only part of the temple that they could get into to pray and to worship. There were many Jews who thought that the Messiah came. He was going to drive the Gentiles out of Jerusalem, out of the temple. But in Mark's account of the temple cleansing, which is more than likely a second temple cleansing that occurs later in Jesus' ministry, in that account, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56 and says, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? For all nations. The temple was meant to be a witness to the nations. It was meant to draw people into a place where anyone who called on the name of the Lord could worship him and be near him. But this place that was meant to be a place where the nations could come and worship God had been turned into a marketplace. I mean, can you imagine trying to have church in here if it was a bustling marketplace and there are animals going everywhere? I mean, it's, it's almost as hard as trying to have a conversation at Freight Yard when the band's playing. Like, it just, you can't, you can't do it. It's too noisy. There's too much distraction. Additionally, in Mark's account, uh, we're told that the the authorities have made the temple a den of robbers, a den of robbers, which may indicate that as they were selling animals, they were jacking up the cost of the animals, kind of like ticket scalpers. Or when they were exchanging money, they were charging you a little bit more than the accepted exchange rate to exchange currency. They were, they were taking advantage of the people who had come to worship. And then Jesus comes in. <clears throat> and he doesn't kick the Gentiles out. 
he pronounces judgment on what's happening in his father's house. He's zealous about his father's house because he wants this to be a place where people can meet his father and worship his father. That's what he desires. He was supposed to be a place where you offered sacrifices and worshiped a God who delights to forgive sin. Instead, the religious leaders of the day had made the temple feel more like an assembly line. They used worship as an opportunity to make money. They put their hope in their own ability to go above and beyond what the law required. And instead of trusting in the lambs that were being sacrificed, many of them trusted in their own ability to jump through religious hoops. And as they jumped through these hoops, they set their hopes on a political Messiah who would come and deliver them from Roman rule and give the nation back to them. And Jesus came to take an axe to all of that. He didn't drive the Gentiles out. He didn't kick them out. He didn't run the Romans off. He didn't come to do that. He came actually to bring them in. To bring them in. You know, there are things in our lives that Jesus comes to bring an axe to as well. Temple leaders aren't the only ones who get caught up in just going through the religious motions, confident in their own righteousness, more concerned with their own material prosperity and political deliverance than they are with confessing their sins and worshiping the Father. Jesus wants people to know his Father. Jesus wants people to worship his Father. Jesus wants people to experience the forgiveness that only his father can bring. That's what he desires. So how's he going to bring that about? Well, sometimes to get our attention, Jesus does have to turn over some tables, right? Would you have gotten serious about Jesus if that crack hadn't appeared in your marriage? Would you have gotten serious about Jesus if you hadn't lost that job? If you hadn't had that health scare? If your children weren't running off the rails, if you hadn't encountered failure for the first time in your life, if that sin that you had tried to keep so quiet hadn't been exposed. See, sometimes if we're going to get past our religious smiles and our empty worship and our shallow belief and meet his Father, Jesus has to come into our lives and turn over some tables. Jesus has this habit of, of taking things away from us that we've been trusting in for our righteousness and our identity. I remember a friend one time telling me that he had always played baseball and then he got to college and he was sure he was going to play baseball there, but he didn't make the team. And what he had always leaned on for his identity was taken away from him. For those of you who are Marvel fans, Dr. Strange, Stephen Strange, he was one of the best surgeons in the world. And along with that skill came arrogance and he built his identity on his skills and his ability and people's response to the things he was able to do. But then the nerves in his hand were damaged and he couldn't operate anymore. And who was he then? What was his identity? Where would he find his righteousness now? We want Jesus to come in and, and, and bless us and give us what our hearts desire, whatever that is for you. Give, give me comfort and ease and pleasure. And he has this way of coming into our lives like he came into the temple and 
trashing the furniture, uh, going down into the basement and pulling things out that we rather would have stayed down there in the basement and exposing our idols, exposing our works, righteousness. He comes and starts to tear down those identities we've tried so hard to build for ourselves apart from God. He has this way of exposing our spiritual poverty. But if that's all he does, it's not going to be a lot of help, is it? I mean, it is necessary, right? It is part of the process. Uh, A family may have to do an intervention with a loved one who has a drinking problem. They may have to really get in their face. They may have to pour out all the alcohol, all that kind of stuff. But if if that's all they do, there's a good chance their loved one's going to start drinking again. I mean, think about Jesus. He had to go back to the temple again. One time, didn't do the trick. But that's what the text tells us, isn't it? That Jesus does more than just turn over tables. He does more than bring judgment. He actually allows the tables to be turned on him. He allows himself to be whipped. He allows himself to be removed from the very presence of God. Notice what he tells the religious leaders here. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And they thought he was talking about the physical temple. And John tells us that Jesus was actually talking about his body. See, On the cross, Jesus took the judgment that we deserve for our shallow worship and our ignoring of God and our efforts to create our own righteousness. Uh, There was one thing that had to be done if we were going to meet his father. And Jesus did it. There was one thing that had to be done if we were going to meet his father and know his father and worship his father And that's that our debt had to be paid. Our sin had to be judged. And in Jesus, it was. And on the third day, Jesus' payment, the evidence that his payment was accepted, was given. Victory over sin and and death were declared to all as he rose from the dead and pronounced to all, mission accomplished. I remember hearing a story on Radio Lab one time. It was about a young lady who had no identity. Uh, she had grown up homeschooled, home doctored, home birthed. It was, it was home everything. The family wouldn't even let her 21-year-old brother get a job when he turned 21. They wouldn't let him leave the family compound. And so she finally had enough of all this, and she ran away. But she had no birth certificate, no, no record of having ever been born, no record of having gone to school, no social security number, no driver's license, no anything. And so she has to spend all of this time trying to establish an identity for herself. She's trying to get the documents she needs to live in the world that you and I all operate in, but every time she goes to get one document, what are they? Well, you got to have this document. So she goes, well, I don't have that one. And she, like it's an impossible situation. She's just running in a circle. I think that's a picture of, of who we are apart from God. Sin sin has left us in this place where we are trying to build an identity for ourselves apart from God. 
And it's like we're creating this big scaffolding of works righteousness. I'm okay, accept me, I'm worthy. And Jesus comes and he tears all that down. He turns over the tables because it can't fix what our real problem is. It can't bring us back into a relationship with the God that we are estranged from. And what we need is not to create an identity through our working and through our accomplishments. What we need, Jesus says, is to meet his Father. To meet his Father. And to know his Father, who gives us a new identity. He says, you are now my child. You're forgiven son. You're forgiven daughter. You're righteous in my sight because of the work of my son. And you don't have to work for that. You don't have to build anything for that. You don't have to labor for that. You simply have to receive that as a gift by faith, trusting in what Jesus has done for you. And when you do that, you get all the papers you need, the papers that say, forgiven son, forgiven daughter of the king. And again, those are offered to you freely through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, has Jesus been turning any tables over in your life recently? Maybe it's because he wants you to once again see your spiritual poverty and see your need and meet his father. Have you met him? Have you met him? Let me pray for us. Father, we are, we are so prone um, to try to build our own identities. We are so prone to try to cover up the things that are inside of us. And yet you see, you see, you send Jesus to tear that stuff down. You send Jesus to expose our sin. And then you see, send Jesus to restore us. So we thank you for the good news.